0: Welcome, everybody, to the Mets News Podcast, where we talk all things Mets and anything I feel like talking about. Now, today, Mets Rewind is on. He is the interview portion. It was great to have him on. Did I recorded the interview last Tuesday, and I was going to put him out last Tuesday, but then the draft expert and I really got into an in-depth conversation about the Kevin Pillar incident and how we don't like the pitchers don't have control. And we covered some breaking news on Wednesday. So I thought, you know what? Nets Rewind can come out any day because we're really talking about the past. So I thought now would be a good time to bring him out. Now, we do have some breaking news. Dom Smith is out with a knee injury. He should be available to pinch hit. Jacob DeGrom pitched last night and pitched 63 pitches, struck out nine batters in five innings, I believe. Could be off, could have struck out 10, could have struck out nine. I really can't remember. I'm pretty sure it's nine. I have a good memory when it comes to Mets stuff. I wish you could say the same thing about some other stuff, but it is what it is. We added someone else to the injury list. Uh, Jordan, Jordan Yanamoto is on the injury list now. And I want to just say something. For the people that were harassing his wife, and I don't think it was anyone in my audience, please, just don't do that. We've done, this. We've done it with James McCann's wife. I shouldn't say I haven't done it. Uh, the Met Twitter feed or trolls, whatever you want to call them, have done it with the other wives. I just don't like it. I don't think Jordan Yanomoto handled it. I think he handled it correctly, actually, excuse me. So that's all I want to say. Do it. Just be careful what you post on social media because I know I have a lot of young listeners. So be careful what you post, and I'm young myself, because it will come back to bite you in the rear hind. So just be careful, would be my message. Now, we have some breaking news about former Met manager Mickey Calloway. Then we'll talk about the injuries, and then we'll talk about DeGrom. But I think this is more important. Here we go. <clears throat> From Commissioner Rob Manford, MLB concluded after their investigation on Mickey Calloway, Angels pitching coach, that he committed sexual assault, that he committed it, and he violated MLB guidelines. Mickey Calloway is suspended through 2022. He has lost his job with the Angels, and you know what? Good, good. This was the right move. Just like the Mets' Jared Porter deserved to get fired, Mickey Calloway deserved to get fired. I don't care who you are. This is not... This is an issue where if you commit a heinous, disgusting deed like that, you deserve to get fired, whether it's man or female, but they deserve Mickey Callaway should never work in the industry again. Just like Jared Porter shouldn't work in the injury industry, excuse me, again. I am one hundred percent for it. I don't know why he was able to be the Angels man not manager, pitching coach to begin with. I thought that was disgusting. I didn't think the Angels handled it correctly. So good, he's fired, good good riddings. And now this does bring up the issue. Sandy Alderson has been involved in two hirings. So how much work did Sandy Alderson really do? If this was really all over Cleveland, how much work did Sandy Alderson do? And that's nothing. Sandy's a great general manager. I am not saying that. Sandy is a freaking genius general manager. He's going in the Hall of Fame. But I think that's a question that needs to be asked. Three people that the met, there have been more in the Wilpon era... Well, I don't know if Sandy was there. Was he there for the other one? I don't know. So let's just say, hypothetically, there were three instances. There could have been two. We know it's definitely two. Of course, this didn't happen under the Mets watch. So is this an MLB thing? I I don't know. But I don't want to get into it. But good, Mickey Calloway's is fired. Uh, The injuries, again, keep piling up. Jason Fargas. No, Joneski Fargas is on the IL now. Sprained. ACL. Luke. And had a setback. Now, this is what I was worried about with Syndergaard. Why is he throwing 99 in his first rehab start? He's got to work his way up. And the Met training staff, to be honest with you, it, it should be fired. I mean, these guys are from the Wolpon era. Ryan Chicklow is from the Wolpon era. And all of these injuries. Okay, Pete, you can't stop it. Pilar, you can't stop it. But all the other ones are abdominal injuries. The Noah Syndergaard one should have been stopped. This is ridiculous. All these guys are getting ridiculous. All these guys are getting hurt. This is like a freaking disgrace. 17 guys on the IL. I mean, come on. These are all abdominal injuries. And like, these are all soft tissue injuries too. So this was not, they weren't properly trained. In McNeil's case, he wasn't properly hydrated. Conforto, I don't know. Conforto, you could say he wasn't properly stretched. Maybe it's just three, but come on. It's like, this is ridiculous. Janeski, far, I guess, fine. So three out of, three out of 16, 17, excuse me, maybe Yanomoto. This is a training staff problem. Because even with Yanomoto, he had the shoulder pain. It was pretty obvious. Again, I wasn't watching the game live. I was coaching. So I watched the replay. But even I could tell something was up with his shoulder. It was sagging a little bit. The Mets are a freaking disgrace sometimes. You know what? They are a freaking disgrace. I'll admit it. And listen, I love the job that Steve is doing. Mr. Steve Cohen, I love it. I think it's a great job. But he, he has to fire the training staff here. I mean, or some Brian Chickle has to go. And I don't like calling for people's jobs, but come on. these A lot of these injuries are soft tissue injuries. And guards. He should know better. The Met training staff should know better, and that's at the single A level, the AAA level, you know, whatever level you're talking about. JD Davis has his hand hasn't gotten better. I mean, but this, come on, Cyndegard's is a disgrace. That's the one I'm really getting agitated about because if you're Syndicard, you shouldn't be throwing 99. But he's a he's a competitor. He's like a dog. What I mean by that is he's like a dog, or no, he's like a horse. You know how the horses when you do the Kentucky Derby? They just go, go, go. That's what Syndergaard wants to do, and people forget about Syndergaard. This is a contract year for him, so he wants to go. But the Mets should say, listen, we don't want you to throw 97, 98, because this could happen, and it could be a small setback. But I remember with Lugo, it's just flashing through my head. With Seth Frick, with not Lugo, with Wheeler, with the Wheeler, oh my goodness, with, with, with the Wheeler, he was out for three years. And I understand Syndergaard's not our problem after this year if we don't resign him, but he could help us now. The Mets are thin on pitching. We don't know when Walker's coming back. You don't know when Carrasco's coming back. But you let your horse, Syndergaard, I'm using it as a metaphor, your horse run. Like he was 100% when he was really 80%, and he's rehabbing back. Your body cannot throw 99 after two years of not pitching. It's just not possible. They had to treat this like a spring training. And if that means he came back in July, he comes back in July. Now he's not going to be back till July at the earliest. He might not be back till August at this rate. It's a freaking disgrace. And if I'm part of the mech training staff, I'm ashamed right now. And I understand some of the injuries aren't their fault. I could list them. But majority of these injuries are soft tissue injuries that have they were not treated properly to begin with, and they've gotten worse and worse and worse. McNeil, Taiwan Walker. Pete Alonso, you can make the case. Maybe he should have been on the I.O. earlier. Dom Smith scraped his knee and now he's out. I mean, that's just bad luck. Pilar, bad luck, but Dom's not in the I.O. But the Mets training staff, and by the way, I love the fight the Mets are showing. I'm going to give Rojas credit. I love the way the Mets are fighting. They shouldn't have won half the games they've won but yet, because they have a manager... I don't know. I don't know. I don't think the manager's pushing buttons. I don't agree with him batting Cameron him fourth. I don't. I don't understand why he was batting third, excuse me, not fourth. I, I don't understand why it took so long to make uh, Tomas Nito the everyday catcher. But still, the Mets are winning. And if the Mets don't get these reinforcements back, which is looking that way, I mean, there's a chance Taiwan will be back. We don't know. There, there's a ch- we know Lugo's back. But now our bats are going to be gone for a while. And Pete could be back. We don't know. But I'm just saying, if I'm the Mets training staff, if things don't improve, they got to make a change. So let's hope the Mets keep winning. Because I'm not like some of the people in, on, uh, in the fan base. There are some people, and I, don't, I don't call them true fans. They want the Mets to lose so they can be same old Mets. But I don't think it, this is the same old Mets. This team has a lot of fight, and I think a lot of it has to do with young players. I think it really does. And we're going to continue to need these young players and, and veterans that are, we picked off the street that were playing independent ball like Brandon Jury to continue to produce. Let's go Mets. We're happy to see DeGroms back. We're happy to see Taiwan hopefully be back. Lugo's going to be back next week, by all assumptions, which is good. On to the interview with Mets Rewind. I had a blast. Subscribe to all my platforms. Let's pray to the baseball gods these injuries stop because I hate it. I hate seeing guys go down like Fargus and Synderga- not Syndergaard, McNeil, Conforto. I hate seeing them go down. Taiwan Walker, I hate it, but it is what it is. This is the situation. I and I I don't know if this is just a baseball problem, too. It could be. I could be 100% off. This could just be a baseball problem. Because Mike Trout's out for six weeks. I don't know what this is. But it, baseball's really the only sport that's dealing with this injury. Maybe that's because baseball, they really played 60 games in a sprint. And they did more training, Ron Darling said. But uh, the Mets are just completely different, though. And I think even Ron Darling said that the other day. I could be wrong. I think he said that during the Atlanta Braves series. That the Mets are just completely in a different scenario. But, again, it is what it is. On to the interview at Mets Rewind. Stay safe and have a good one. And subscribe to all my platforms. Stay safe. Here is Mets Rewind. All right, welcome everybody to the Mets News Podcast. So we talk all things Mets and anything I feel like talking about now. I really wanted to have some Mets guests on because during the podcast really existence, I've had a lot of coaches on. I've had some NFL insiders on from John Boy Media, but I haven't had really any Mets guys on. So I thought, why don't I uh, personally DM? Mets Rewind because I've always thought their website was really cool, and he was very gracious to come on with me. So, let's welcome on the creator of Mets Rewind and see how he's doing. So, how are you doing? Good,
1: I'm great, thanks so much. My name is John Struble, and uh, I run Mets
0: Rewind. So, tell me a little bit about why you wanted to start such a cool website because I was just doing a little research myself. You have the Mets following you, you have former players and current players, you have the seven line, you have pretty much everybody that's big following you and you have a hall of fame. So just tell me a little bit, bit about what you do.
1: Yeah. So if you're a baseball fan at all, and you, you know, anything uh, about baseball history, one of the things Babe Ruth said um, years and years ago is you could be in the hall of fame and strike out seven, out of 10 at bats. You're still a 300 hitter. Well, you know, Benny, that's actually what I did. I had run a few other Mets websites that were focused more on um, current day-to-day news, but there is such a gathering of community out there that does it really well that I didn't um, did really experience the success or growth um, in that lane as I had hoped to. And I just realized there's so many people who already have an audience for this and are doing it well. Why do they need another blog or another podcast that's focused on current Mets news and day-to-day coverage? Plus you got all your traditional media outlets, your SNYs and Daily News, New York Post, and all those traditional media outlets serving up content on a regular basis. So I began to focus on finding a niche within the Mets community as a Mets fan since 1972. And I realized, you know, I, I, I have been watching the Mets since 72 um, outside of those very early years. Um, I have a pretty good understanding of, of where they've been and what they've done. And um, I think there's a niche here to do some Mets history And then I started it and uh, just started with a simple Twitter feed and just started sharing some content about things that happened in Mets history on such and such a date. And, um, it started to get a small loyal following. And then after about, no, maybe a year and a half of doing that, um, I was watching a Mets game. They were playing the Marlins one night. It was in the middle of the summer. I think it was 2018. And, uh, I wasn't listening to the radio broadcast, but Howie Rose, by chance, had mentioned something I had posted earlier in the day, and he mentioned Mets Rewind a couple times um, within a half inning, and uh, I started getting all these DMs and um, text messages and saying, are you listening to Howie Rose? And I'm like, no, what's going on? and um, i actually found out that he had mentioned it and uh, it kind of was the beginning of it really taking off from there he wasn't even on twitter at the time and uh, he was just mentioning some other content and uh, it actually began to grow audience a lot quicker after how we had made that mention and then it just kind of took off and and kind of like a brush fire Um, took on a life of its own. So from there, I kind of grew it into Facebook and added Instagram. And uh, then we started to build the website where we are now. And the website still got some work to be done on the back end of doing some of the larger history pieces. But, you know, in general, um, we are growing fast and pretty excited. It's it's a fun niche to cover. And uh, I think history has a nice little niche out there. And there's some people that do that very well too. Matt Silverman, um, Greg Prince does it real well. Ed Laro does it very well. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm probably missing a couple people. And if I did, I'm so sorry, but um, there are some people that do Mets history really well in different forms and shapes. So then we added the podcast and that's kind of where we
0: are right now, Benny. So I'm, I'm very interested We all know that the Wilpons could be very, have you had any interaction with them to start off any Met ownership current day or in the past?
1: Uh, Not current day. Um, Obviously I've never talked to Steve Cohen. I never talked to the Wilpons, but I think um, even a lot of traditional media people uh, would tell you that access to them was very limited and. Most of their talking would be in front of cameras in in a larger press conference setting. Um, you don't see any profile interviews out there with um, Jeff Wilpon in in his tenure as Met COO. And, you know, I think there was one long form story done on Fred Wilpon maybe 10, 12 years ago, and it kind of blew up on him um, back in the David Wright days. And yep. uh, so beyond that, really. Nobody in the current Met ownership, but um, yes, there are people that I communicate with in previous Mets iterations of that ownership, which play in very well and give me some understanding about deals that they made in the past and how those came about and the anatomy of some of those trades. And it helps me understand the game of baseball because at the end of the day, what I'm trying to do also is be more educated about how the game works. And. How, how the business side works and uh, and how that leads to a deal, because uh, mm. we don't see all the nuts and bolts of that. We only see what is splashed across the newspapers that the Mets have signed Francisco Indoor for X amount of dollars, or the Mets have traded X, Y, and Z for X, Y, and Z. And so uh, to get that understanding and that background of of some of those past trades is very informative to me. They don't always go on the record, but they are very helpful and very insightful.
0: So. So it's good. Cause I know with met with the Mets, it can be difficult sometimes if you're using their name, they could be a little difficult is what I'm trying to say. So I'm happy you had no problems. Cause I think what you do is very cool. I want to talk about the hall of fame in a sense. I saw you guys have it and I want to, I see you induct a lot of players, and I just want to get your perspective on why you started one.
1: Yeah, well, uh, number one, I think um, the Mets Hall of Fame that they have on site at Citi Field is nice. And I think it yep. reflects um, a decent they do a decent job of uh, honoring uh, past players and uh, coaches and owners and media players. Um, influences that have come through there but um, I saw an opportunity for the fans to really get engaged so I thought uh, the Mets Rewind Hall of Fame is a digital Hall of Fame that uh, we do once a year and uh, fans and uh, can go on and uh, vote for themselves and I pick um, I pick a probably 10 or 12 players each 10 or 12 players or it could be an owner or a a media personality like Ralph Kiner or Bob Murphy or some of those older broadcasters. Um, And I let the fans vote on who they think is most worthy. And it's interesting because at the end of the day, there are 13 people in the Mets Rewind Hall of Fame. And some of those aren't in the Mets Hall of Fame. So um, it's a unique person. I like to have the fans have a voice and and to be able to influence that process and then to honor those players who um, are voted in uh, is just a thrill to me. Um, It's a small token um, in comparison to what the Mets can do because of their larger audience and their site and all that stuff. But um, it's a fun thing to do and uh, it creates more engagement with the fans.
0: Yeah, and I think that's really cool because I think that's really what the game is missing today is that interaction letting the fans pick i just think having that hall of fame is really neat and i i want to know who's on the ballot this year have you announced it yet so the players can go the fans excuse me can go and vote and yes so
1: i'll be i will take you through that if you go to metsrewind.com and right at the top of the page there is a tab that says mets rewind hall of fame and if you pull that up If you voted already, it'll tell you that you've already voted. If you have not voted, um, it'll give you the list of names and players who are available on that list. And let me pull those up. First, I want to take you through who has been voted into the Mets Hall of Fame, uh, Rewind Hall of Fame since the fall of 2019 when we kicked it off. Ed Cranepool, Bob Murphy, Tug McGraw, Tom Seaver, Mike Piazza, Gil Hodges, David Wright, Jerry Kuzman. Keith Hernandez, Daryl Strawberry, Dwight Gooden, Rusty Staub, and Gary Carter. And um, leading the way in this class, voting will close on on June 30th, and we will announce the class of 2021 on um, July 4th weekend. And and so uh, let me pull up that information as to who is on the ballot for this year, so you can... You can have those list of names right now. Um, Ralph Kiner leads the way in voting. And second is um, Joan Payson. And where is my list here? I will pull that up in one second. And okay, here it is. Class of 2021. I'm sorry for the delay, but yeah, that, no the problem. hall of the hall of fame has been a great interactive piece and a lot of fans have been involved. Okay, so here's the, here's the remaining list of people on the class of 2021 ballot Casey Stengel,
0: oh, Dave sir. Kingman,
1: Dave Kingman, Ron Darling, Ralph Kiner, Jerry Grody, Joan Payson, Carlos Beltran, William A. Shea, Bobby Valentine, Al Leiter, Davey Johnson, and Frank Cashin.
0: To me, those are all guys that deserve to get into the Mets. I I think most of them are in the Mets Hall of Fame, but all guys are very worthy because they're all huge parts of the organization's fabric
1: in a sense. Yes, they are. Um, so, you know, it really comes down to the voting. And, and, you know, like I said, Ralph Kiner leads the vote right now. And, the vo- and voting remains open until June 30th. So Kiner is first. Davey Johnson has moved into second place as of today. Casey Stengel is third. Joan Payson is fourth. And Frank Cashin is fifth. So, um, you know, those who don't make it that fall off that list, we take the top three and uh, they will go into the class of 2021. So if it ended today, it'd be Ralph Kiner, Davey Johnson, and Casey Stengel, Joan Payson, Frank Cashin, William Shea, Grody, Darling, Beltron, Kingman, Valentine, Leiter. They would all go in, into the next class and voting would start all over again for them because um, they're still major parts of Mets history. So they just haven't risen up to the top three at this point. So that's where we are right now.
0: Yeah, and everyone go vote. I'm going to go vote as soon as we're done with this podcast. And I want to get your perspective because you are a a look back at history. What is like the best part of Mets history to cover? Is it the 86 team? Is it the 69 Mets? Is it the 2000 Mets, the 2015 Mets, 73? What is the best part of history to cover so far for you?
1: For me, I've got to tell you, Benny, and and I think this is pretty much reflective of anyone I've talked to who's a Mets fan, um, either through social media or people who email me on a regular basis. It really depends on what generation you grew up in. So say, for example, I don't know how old you are, but say you're 25 years old and you grew up, you were 12 years old in 2005, 2006, something like that my math's probably not that good, but so you're somewhere in there and you're watching your experience in the Mets for the first time as they're in that playoff run in 2006. So you remember Andy Chavez and you remember Pedro Martinez and Carlos Delgado and Carlos Beltran. And those are the guys you grew up with. And those are the guys that mean a lot to you and they always will. So that generation of Mets is important to you and probably you feel intimately connected with. For me, I'm 56 years old now, and so my first experience with the Mets was 1972. Now, I saw the 73 World Series, but I still wasn't, I was probably, you know, eight, nine years old, I was, still wasn't fully connected with the Mets in terms of having any depth of knowledge so my experience in terms of covering the Mets, when you get into those later 70s years in early 80s, when they were absolutely horrible. Yep. Um, those were the teams that I watched with the most passion. Lee Mazzilli, Steve Henderson, Pat Zachary, um, Dave Kingman, John Stearns, all those guys that came up, Felix Mion, Ed Crane Poole. Um, all those guys were kind of central and core to my becoming a Mets fan at the deep level I am. So uh, to me, it's fun to cover and talk to guys who played through that generation at Shea because I would go out to games during that time at Shea Stadium. And really, honestly, this is not a fabrication. Go back and look at baseball reference and look at games in September, even in August, down the stretch in 77 78 79 80 there were literally three to five thousand people in that ballpark and we and could walk right down fans. yeah it, it, we could walk right down into the box seats and um it was a different experience and it was just it but it was my experience so when 83 rolled around and people like strawberry and and then Hernandez and the trade and um, those things started to come together and guys like Wally Backman and Mookie Wilson started coming up through the system. Um, it, it was a real exciting time. I had I, I couldn't believe the Mets could even win. And then they win 92 games in 84 and 85. I thought they're, they're going to win the World Series this year. And then 86, they do. In 87 through 89, they played great. But um, I was still really emotionally connected and really intimately connected with those teams. But for me, there was nothing more exciting than uh, um, even those teams in the late 70s because I was just so into it. I was a teenager and it just meant a lot to me. So I enjoy covering that time period because I'm so connected to it. Plus, I, I love to know how baseball players respond in a time when they're very um, vulnerable and weak, and they're challenged, and they're losing, how how does their character measure up? Does it rise to the top, or do they check out, you know, in the second half of the season? July, August, September, you're playing at home in front of 3,000, 5,000 fans. How do you get motivated to do that? So talking to those guys about that, Craig Swan and Pat Zachary and people like that, it's like, it's very... It's not a fun time in Mets history in terms of wins and losses, but it's an interesting time because you're also going through the Seaver trade and, and all that Jerry Kuzman leaving and all that you know dismantling of those 69 and 73 teams. There's a lot going on during that time, which is very compelling and intriguing to discuss. Not fun in the outcomes when you look at it on paper, but I think it was a very interesting time in Mets history.
0: I, I really couldn't agree with you more. I'll show my age. When I started to like the Mets, it was probably 2010, okay. uh, maybe 11. So yep. I kind of, listen, my generation of fans didn't have it as bad as the 70s fans. But we maybe, I think, might have had the second, maybe worst stretch, maybe third, because the Wolpons weren't spending money because of the Madoff. They went through a rebuild time where they traded away guys like Beltran. Reyes left. And David Wright was the only one around, really. And then Matt Harvey came up. And then in 2014, you started to see the white at the end of the tunnel. And then 15, Cespedes, Johnson, Uribe comes. So to most fans that are probably your age, those teams don't mean as much to you, the 2012 Mets, 13, 14, 11. But those teams to our age, mean a lot to us and Terry Collins I'll show my age will always be my favorite manager because in September his teams never quit no matter yeah. how bad the team was and maybe that era in Mets history would be worse if Terry Collins didn't motivate the players to come and show up and play so mm-hmm. yeah I,
1: I the, really let me add this too Benny it's so even though they're two different generations they were similar outcomes whether it was the late 70s or early 2010s, but your passion was built into those teams. So whether it was for me in 78, it was John Stearns catching. And for you in 2012, it was whoever playing middle infield. Those guys will resonate with you for the rest of your life. When you get to my age, right now you'll look back at those teams in the early 2010s and and you'll still connect with them and you'll still be able to remember them in great detail because that's what you grew up with and that's when you really started connecting with the Mets so I think from a generational standpoint we may have different we may lean in a little more in certain years and stuff but at the end of the day we still have those generations that we go through that mean just as much to us, just like it means to someone else in a different generation. And at the end of the day, we come right to the middle of the road and we're both on the same. We're both in the same. um, We're both in the same pool. We're both rooting for the Mets at the end of the day. So um, we kind of understand and appreciate each other's experience. So I wouldn't say the 2010, 11, 12, 13, 14 teams meant less to me um i kind of understand that but i think i have a different appreciation for where they've been just because i've kind of been through the grinder a little more um and that just comes with time now that you've been through the grinder when you hit 2015 just like for me when i went through those late 70s and we hit 84 85 i was like this is a dream come true they, they hadn't even won the World Series yet, but it was like, this is unbelievable. The Mets have won 90 plus games three years in a row, over 100 in 86. But 84, 85, 86 was like, this, this is not the team that I grew up with. These guys are outrageously good. So by the time you hit 2015 in that second half with the arrival of Cespedes when they really took off, it's like, same thing. It's just a different generation,
0: same experience. Yeah, and it's hard to believe that team is going to be six years old. If my math is correct, could be off by a year. But I want to get your perspective, and this may be weird, but the Mets have always had, other than great pitching, they've had great announcing. They had Kiner and all those guys, and now you have guys Gary Keith, Ron, uh, Howie Rose, and Wayne Randazzo. So I want to get your perspective on how the Mets have gotten so lucky with announcing
1: uh, i think it's less luck and well maybe luck a stroke of luck in the beginning to get murphy nelson and kiner in the same booth but if you listen to those three guys in 62 and 63 when they were at the polo grounds and then you listen to them together in the la- latter part of the 60s and and through the early part of the 70s um there was definitely a deeper chemistry there in an anticipation of each other, each other's um, cadence and how they spoke and what they talked about, that they were much more in a groove and in a rhythm. Um, but you had a professional broadcaster and Bob Murphy, who had a ton of experience coming to New York. You had Ralph Kiner, who was a former player that brought that player experience and all those stories. Um to the game and to the Mets, especially when they needed it early on when they were losing all those games. You need to keep people interested. And that's, he was a vital part of that. And Lindsey Nelson had a storied broadcasting career, both with Notre Dame football and um, obviously with the Mets, and then went on to broadcast for the Giants for a short period of time. But those three guys laid the foundation and the groundwork for. Howie Rose and Gary Cohn, because if you go back and ask them, well, Howie will tell you his, his most influential guy was Marv Albert, but he listened to Murph and um, Gary Cohn is a big Bob Murphy um, influence for him. So those guys, uh, Gary Cohn, Howie Rose um, got teamed up with their guys. uh, Again, just a different generation, Keith Hernandez and Ron Darling in Gary's case. If you listen to Gary, he's he's orchestrating the broadcast and doing the X's and O's, but he's yep. asking great fan base questions to the two players to get insight as to why did a player do this on the field? I don't understand. Explain it. And you got a great pitcher and a great hitter um, on both sides of the ball, the offense and defensive side, who can give you full explanations. Um, as to what's going on in the player's head. So, um, yes, our, uh, that's not to discount our Gary and Howie and Wayne Rondazzo qualified without those guys. Absolutely, they are qualified, but they were fully prepared and educated and trained up by the generation before them, which was Ralph, Murph, and Lindsay. And um, they struck gold, they just struck gold. Um, the stars aligned when they got those three guys in the booth in 62, but I don't think you heard the best of them until the later 60s, 67, 68, when they were starting to come around and Seaver was there and Kuzman, and they started to build that 69 team. They were really rolling. Then you can listen to radio broadcasts from 62 and then go and listen to a radio broadcast from 68 or the early seventies or something. You go, Oh, I can still hear their voice, but there's a chemistry there now. That's just. It's so smooth and so perfect. It was, Mets have been really, really blessed in that, in that respect of having great broadcasters.
0: Yeah, and really the one thing the Mets have had is like you said, great broadcasters. And I want to get your perspective. I said the Mets also had great pitching. Jacob deGrom has really put together one of the best stretches in baseball history. Tom Seaver will always be the franchise in number one, but where does deGrom rank after receiver, where does he rank? Does he rank two, three, four, five? Because the Mets have also had Gooden, Kuzman, Cohen, I Outlider, even though I don't think Outlider's on Gooden territory and Kuzman territory.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's a loaded question. And I think it really comes down to it talking individually about the generations of pitchers and really where when they pitched and who who they, who was playing around them and what kind of teams they were pitching for. Um, There's no way um, Jacob deGrom will ever win 311 games like Tom Seaver did. Now, does that mean he's a lesser pitcher than Tom Seaver? Absolutely not. Um, Look at Sandy Koufax who pitched for the Dodgers. Um, He didn't win close to that. I think he won about half the amount of games that Seaver did but he dominated for a five or six year period to the degree that nobody could hit him. And then he just hung it up and uh, his arm was tired and um, he was done. And so DeGrom is still a work in progress to me. Will he get better? I don't know if that's even possible because he dominates everybody he pitches against, but can he keep up that consistency over four or five more years? That will make him a Hall of Fame quality pitcher. Jerry Koosman was a guy who um, was totally different. Always pitched. He would have been the ace of the Mets staff if Tom Seaver weren't there. Always pitched in the shadow of Seaver. Did that make him any less of a pitcher? Absolutely not. Um, You know, so as you're going through each one of these, they all had their qualities. Dwight Gooden, um, 1984, 1985. He was off the charts and um, it was his two greatest years of his career. And then, you know, obviously things turned bad for him after that. But in a short period of time, he was the most dominant pitcher in baseball. Um, But over a long period of time, if you're going to look at careers, he doesn't rank up there with Seaver. No one pitched more consistently, more dominating uh, over a long period of time than Tom Seaver. And now, could Degrom get up and match him? Sure, it's there's still some there's still some uh, time to talk about that. I don't think we need to make that determination yet. But right now, if you were to ever have a chance to watch Seaver pitch a full game, it, it's it was like nothing else. There was nothing else like it. And Degrom's kind of you know the way he started this year. It's kind of Benny. It's kind of the same way. Every time he takes the mound, it's like. No one can hit this guy. You know, he's not getting any runs. Yep. He's not getting wins, but he is
0: yep. he is the best pitcher in baseball, period. I Yeah, I mean, t- the, the few games he's won, I think he's driven in at least two runs. I could be <laughs> off on that. But, yeah, I just, to me, I think Sieber will always be the franchise because he was the first. I think Howie Rose said that. And I, mm-hmm. I, I couldn't agree with him more, but I, I think DeGrom has a chance to be at least number two. I To no me, question. it's like, the question is of how long will he do it for, like you said?
1: Yeah, so the, the question is like, you know, say Jacob DeGrom's arm falls off next year. He just falls off the table um, and it, it just starts going south real fast. Then how do you categorize him? So I think you have to look at the totality of his career. And I think there's time to Um, really um, takes stock in what Jacob deGrom has done once he says, I'm done playing and finishes up. And we see his, not just his numbers, but the impact he's had on the game and on the Mets over a long period of time. He's a high character guy. Um, So, you know, there's that element too. So yeah, can deGrom rise to the level of Seaver? Absolutely. But I think there's time to have that discussion and it still remains to be seen right now.
0: Yeah. And time will tell. And I want to get your perspective. Uh, obviously the Mets sold the team. It's been a couple months. A lot of things I think the whole fan base can agree has changed for the better. Where will the Wilpons rank with Mets owners? Cause it didn't end well. And I think we can agree that a lot of the fan base, and I don't know how you felt, but I'll be honest. They didn't really like the way the Wilpons operated the team. It just the way they handled scandals, situations. It wasn't just they didn't spend. It just felt like the Mets were dysfunctional. So what are your thoughts on the Wopan's legacy? I'll give you my experience. I've spent
1: 30 years in in marketing and PR and writing and media and um, more recently in crisis communication and how businesses operate and deal with either dysfunction or bad press. And the biggest problem the Wilpons had, in my opinion, is not coming straight out, admitting to the problem, if there was a problem, and then offering a resolution as to how they were going to move forward. Did the did Jeff and Fred Wilpon, did that ownership team, did Sterling enterprises um ever hope for um Bernie Madoff to come along and and basically dismantle the baseball operation no Uh, you know I don't hold that against Jeff Wilpon or Fred Wilpon that was that was beyond them that was something someone else was doing did that make it right no absolutely not um but they didn't handle it well. And for a long time after that, they said it didn't affect baseball operations. It most certainly did in fact um, impact baseball operations to a large degree. Uh, They could have handled the things a lot better. They could have been more conscious of the fan base and the understanding. That doesn't mean to take every opinion from a fan and say, we're gonna run with that idea. I don't agree with that, but I'm saying from a crisis standpoint, the best thing you could ever do if you're ever in a crisis is to walk up and to say, yep, we got that one wrong. Here's our plan moving forward. Or we're putting a plan together for a resolution to that and we're going to move forward. It was was a bad call. So we're all humans. We do that. Unfortunately, in, in the case of the Will Ponds, And, uh, you know, the other 29 owners in Major League Baseball at the time, they're all subject to that. You're public figures, and you have to answer those questions. How you do that will dictate what you're going to be um, perceived and recognized as historically and what their legacy is going to be. So I think they shot themselves in the foot quite a bit. Um, Obviously, I, I think there's some other, you know, there was a lot of stuff going on in there that Jeff Lopon simply did not have the experience or knowledge to run a baseball operation. And his dad put him in charge of that operation and you saw the results over the last 20 years. So those speak for themselves. Um, obviously, you know, Joan Payson is the one who was the original Mets owner. Um, She did so many great things, gave the team uh, a life, number one, in 1962 by bringing the Mets um, into uh, New York and having a National League team. But, um, you know, um, that just fell apart in in the early 2000s. And um, it's not all about money. I, I think it's great that Steve Cohen has the resources he has right now to do some of the things the Mets do, but it isn't all about money. Look at the team that was three, uh, nine outs, three innings away from winning the world series last year. They had about what maybe 20, 25% of the payroll that the Dodgers had, but Tampa was on the brink of winning that world series. Um, If they didn't take Snell out of the game, they probably would have won the world series. And there's Mm -hmm. a team that is not built on money. It's built on talent and chemistry and, and um and and they do it every year they come up with these guys that just are uh, they're just out of the woodwork and and they play really hard together and so uh, you know at the end of the day that's uh, it's not all about money it's great that we have the resources and tools to be able to afford a francisco lindor but um i don't think we should be dumping money into every single star player that comes along so i think i think steve cohen's wise to that and i think he's um learning the game a lot from Sandy Alderson. I think they they both have a similar philosophy in terms of that. We got the money, we got the resources, we can do it, but do we have to do that? Is that the best solution long-term? Because once you start investing $352 million in one guy, that really cuts down your payroll for the ro- other 24 guys on your roster. I was and just about to say that. Willing to spend. Yeah. So, um, you know, it remains to be seen. Um, I, in to answer your question in short i think the legacies of the wilpons um was something that um, they brought upon themselves by the way they responded to the city and some of the things that happened within the organization they did that all the way from injuries to clubhouse information to ownership decisions and salaries and everything they did it was just very very cloak and dagger so um, it's too bad they could have done a better job of that
0: yeah and I really I couldn't agree with you more because it wasn't like and I'm, I don't know if you guys if you know who this guy is Evan Roberts he's a, yeah. a WFAM guy yep you know he said that the Wilpons spent at one point they didn't spend like the Yankees but they spent yep. and everything was fine and then the whole Bernie Madoff thing happened and I'm 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 not just saying spend, it just felt like every other scandal that came out and you could just name it, they just couldn't handle correctly. And it just felt like the Mets got bad luck after that. And I'm happy. I think we're all happy. We have Steve Cohen, someone that's willing to spend money and not just that, but also is changing the culture for the better. And this leads in, I have a couple more questions and then I'll let you go. Where do you think a guy like Sandy Alderson, because now he's becoming a big part, a Mets history. He's basically been here for a decade. He left for the 2019 season, but he was pretty much around the team in 2020 because of the sale. where do you think he's going to rank as a team president slash general manager? Uh,
1: I I tend to think that Sandy Alderson is still, I think he's brilliant And, and I think he's very quiet and I think he does things very strategically. And, um, Yes, he's getting a little bit older, so I don't think he is long term for the Mets, but I think he's going to establish a culture and a organizational um, direction for the team that will endure over a long period of time and allow the Mets to be successful. He doesn't just gravitate toward jobs that are, you know, he has the financial wherewithal. Look what he did with the Mets when he took them over in um, 2009, 2010, whenever that was, um, you know, he knew he had to get rid of some players, the Oliver Perez's, those guys that were eating up contracts, Jason Bay and Louis Castillo, and some of those guys had to be moved on for multiple reasons. He did that. And sometimes that takes time. And patience is one of the things in baseball and in sports in general, Benny, that um, people just don't have a whole lot of tolerance for. And if you're a manager at the managerial level, or you're in upper management, a GM or a team president, uh, that kind of stuff is—you um, don't get a lot of time. You got to make some moves. So I think bringing Sandy back was a great, um, a great choice. And look what it did—it it helped them kind of smooth over all the problems that they had when they had um, managerial issues with. Um, um the GM before Beltran. yeah yeah well before uh Beltron yes but I mean uh from the GM spot when they had hired the other guy in in and, and brought in Zach Scott um so you know gee whiz that was that was tough but he allowed the Mets continuity and um he was able to kind of step in so I think over long term I think uh Sandy will be um He's, I think he's been a great fit for the Mets and he's been a huge asset. And I think he'll continue to be for as long as he wants to be. Um, I think his health is probably something in his age that um, he's very conscious of and probably will deal with when the time comes. But I think he'll be around for a while.
0: Yeah. And he really was, if you think about it, I could be misremembering something. I think I read it in a book once that the reason, like the Wolfpuns didn't pick Sandy Alderson. I think the MLB kind of forced the Mets to take him on after the Madoff scandal. And he's really been a calming force ever since. And we really got lucky with him in that sense. But I want to ask you a, a couple more questions. You've watched the game for such a long time and analytically, what's your thoughts on analytics? Is it a good thing for the game? Is it a bad thing for the game? Is it in the middle? Cause as a baseball coach, I'm kind of in the middle with it. I see some good things about it. And then I see some bad things about it. So what's your thought as a fan that has watched the team basically since its existence? Um,
1: I'll give you a two-part answer to that. Number one, I'm not a fan of analytics as far as watching the game. I don't care about exit velocity. I don't care about spin rate. Um. None of that has any influence. I like the strategy of the game. There's a guy on second with nobody out. You're going to bunt him to third. You're going to um, try and hit a home run. What's your strategy going to be? How are you going to get that runner home? How's the game played today in that respect? Um, from now, from a player standpoint, I think analytics are great. And I think the more resources and tools you can have at your fingertips to get um, the upper hand on the opponent in terms of watching them and, and understanding. You know, if you're a batter, what's that pitcher throw? What's he do in certain counts? All those different things. Um, Does he pitch towards certain sides of the plate? Um, All that spin rate, if it matters, I don't know. Um, But I think it helps players, and I think it's analytics are great for them. But I think when it's brought into the broadcast and when it's brought into the entertainment side of the game, it's just overwhelming to me. It's not the game I grew up with um does that make me a dinosaur i don't know you could you label me whatever you want um i just like the game i like the strategy of the game i'm not saying we have to go back to playing the way the game was played i just i don't like hearing about you know i don't care about the launch angle of pete alonzo's last home run i saw how far it went it went a long way um to know the launch angle or the exit velocity is like yeah, I imagine it's probably going over 100 miles an hour. I mean, he hit it pretty hard. So to me, that doesn't add any any entertainment value to the game as far as the broadcast.
0: Yeah, and I, I, yeah, I, I couldn't agree again with you more because I think analytics have some good things, but I also think it's getting a little too, uh, I don't know how to put it, it's getting a little too much in the game on both sides and I think the game is slowly starting to turn back to the old way a little bit I'm starting to see some stuff where maybe a guy doesn't have to throw 100 miles an hour he can throw 90 and still know how to locate or mid 90s so we'll see on that aspect of the game and my final question is you said you had a podcast and I just wanted to know who you've had on your podcast where people can find it and what you talk about most of the time. Do you have former players on? So uh, what's your podcast about?
1: Yeah, it's the Mets Rewind podcast. And if you you can subscribe to it on iTunes or Spotify, It's uh, I also have all of our uh, streaming audio interviews on MetsRewind.com. Just click on the Mets Rewind podcast at the top of the page. Uh, this week, actually tonight, I drop a new episode with uh, former Met, Butch Husky, who played with the Mets from 93 to 98. Um, he'll talk about his, um, his first game, uh, his first game he played was the Mets were no hit. So um, that was the first game he started. He'll talk about that. And so that podcast will drop tonight. And then on Friday, um, as we kick off our 2021 Summer Series, uh, we'll have 1986 World Champion uh, Sid Fernandez on the show, and um, he'll talk about his time in New York. He was the first Hawaiian player to make the um, the All-Star team in 1986. Really? He was a two-time All-Star, yep, and uh, he's living back in Hawaii now, and uh, Sid will be on Friday's show, so... This week, we have Butch Husky and Sid Fernandez. Uh, Past episodes, I've had everyone from Pat Zachary, Howard Johnson, former Mets GM, Joe McElvain, um, GM trying to go down, Lenny Randall, um, a lot of the guys from the 80s, 90s time period. Um, There's about, I think about ninety eight podcasts in there right now so you'd go back if you subscribe now and just dig into the archives and pick an episode you like or somebody you remember watching when you were growing up and uh, and reflect on that as well so um, yeah, I love doing that I love connecting with uh, former players and uh, that opportunity so subscribe on just search Mets rewind on iTunes Spotify or just go to our website at Metsrewind.com
0: and The final question is, do you have any advice for someone that's trying to start a podcast, a website? Do you have any advice?
1: Yeah, I I think back to the top of our conversation again was i learned from my mistakes and my Mm -hmm. mistakes were I was trying to do jump in the pool where everybody was already swimming. And so I picked a portion of the pool where no one was swimming and built my audience around that. Uh, Now you can get a little bit too narrow and just talk about, you know, say you started a website for all the Mets players that wore number seven. Well, you're going to run out of content pretty quick. Um, But if you do a Mets history site, uh, like I did, there were only two, three other people doing it. And, um, you know, I started small, I started with a Twitter account and, and just wanted to see if I can build some loyal following. And I did. And then the Howie Rose mentioned help. And then the um, and from there, it just took off. And uh, now I'm just over 10,000 followers there. So and that's all grassroots. I don't do any marketing or advertising. So if you're if you're doing whether it's nets or whether it's um, baseball or another sport or whatever your passion is, find your niche, find what you're most passionate about and go after that and dig instead of going wide, dig deep, dig deep into that subject matter. And, and just keep digging deep and tentacles will spread out and you'll see the influences of all that subject matter. And they bring up really great stories. So in my case, as you go back to 1962, there's a lot of Mets history and a lot of games and a lot of players and a lot of events and a lot of moments um, that players and media and fans and uh, that bring out and have great experiences. I'll give you a great example. Ed Laro, who runs Studious Medicine, is. Um, we were chatting back and forth on Twitter just the other day, and he was writing a post about uh, a brawl that happened at Shea Stadium um, back in nineteen. Nah, I may get this wrong. Ninety six, I think it was. Mets and the Cubs were playing, and now he was sitting like in the first or second row, right over the Cubs' dugout, and the brawl actually broke out into a brush fire all the way over to that side of the dugout and somehow or another, I can't remember the details of it, but Ed had a camera and someone knocked the camera out of his hand and broke his camera. So, I mean, he was, he had a firsthand experience of the fight, but he also had an experience within the game that no one else had. I I find those stories interesting. And um, I think they, they all connect back to Mets fandom and how you experience the game and see it with your own eyes Listen to it with your own ears if it's on a radio um, and, and just experience the game. And I think that's what connects everybody who loves the game of baseball and sports in general.
0: Dan, I think that is great advice. And it was a pleasure to have you on. It was really fun. I love Mets history. I love current day Mets, obviously. But I love having guests on, whether it's football or baseball, that can give me a perspective of the past. And where can we find you? I, the Twitter, the Instagram, the website again, just so my listeners know where to find you.
1: Sure. Yeah. At Mets Rewind on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And if you go on the web, it's MetsRewind.com. You could also find us on iTunes and Spotify. Our podcast is at Mets Rewind, So you can just search for that.
0: Go subscribe to them, follow them, go on the website. I do it. And it really gives me a perspective because I like to think I know my Mets history. I probably know a lot of recent day from the 2000s and 2010s and stuff, but I don't know the past as well as my dad did. And he's really had a time looking back at the past and all the videos you've posted. So go subscribe to them. Thank you so much for coming on. And I think that wraps everything up. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up
1: No, Benny, I enjoy your podcast and I want to just thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to come out and talk to you and uh, keep up, keep doing the good work that you're doing in, um, in uh, gathering Mets fans in a community. And uh, I think you're doing great work. So thanks so much for having me on.
0: All right. Thank you very much. And this has been an edition of the Mets News Podcast. Subscribe to all my platforms and remember to stay safe and have a good one. Let's go Mets.